Welcome to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, the ultimate film and TV podcast. Let's discuss everything we know about Oppenheimer. Hello, movie friends. Welcome back to the show. It is 2023, and we are finally getting a brand new Christopher Nolan film. We saw Tenet in theaters during the lockdown back in 2020. We actually drove down to San Diego to see it in person, and it's crazy to think that's the last time we've seen a Nolan film since his movies come out generally every two years. So this is going to be a three-year gap between films. I'm immensely excited for Oppenheimer. I am so ecstatic. It's my most uh, anticipated film of the year. I cannot wait. Number one for 2023, hands down. I would rather see this five times than everything else that's coming out. Just kidding. I can't wait for Barbie. I can't wait for the other movies as well. They're going to be terrific. And But this is going to be a special film, I think, because Nolan's kind of gone that Stanley Kubrick route. He's done a war film. He's done a bunch of science fiction. He's made groundbreaking science fiction films. Great ideas. He did Batman, just like Kubrick. Yeah, just like Kubrick. <laughs> he took over the... He did an IP of a superhero. I mean, obviously, everyone remembers when Kubrick did Batman. <laughs> But being one of the biggest directors of his era, just like Kubrick as well, like I like to compare their careers because of the kinds of films they make outside of Batman. Both both Warner Brothers directors too. Exactly. Well, not, not, anymore. not anymore. Not anymore, he's not. Warner Brothers let Christopher Nolan somehow slip between their fingers because we'll get into that in a little bit. But Oppenheimer, I cannot wait because he's been going in the route of historical films like Dunkirk was a historical film that he made and that's the first one he'd ever done which is really interesting and I think he did a, well, an excellent job approaching it uh, in terms of like prestige as a period piece but it's not based on an actual event no that's what yeah, I mean like yeah, a okay. historical gotcha, film gotcha. like gotcha. yeah prestige is mm-hmm. fiction. fiction this is non-fiction just like Dunkirk was non-fiction it was his own way of telling mm-hmm. that story yeah with the triptych storytelling but Oppenheimer is just gonna blow people's hair back. I think, like usual, because <laughs> what? <laughs> just a funny choice of words for this movie. I mean, it's how we talk. It's how I talk, man. This is my authentic self. Okay. <laughs> He's gonna blow my. Well, that's my. Every time I walk into a Christopher Nolan movie, I'm so giddy and ecstatic, and the anticipation is the highest it's ever been for me. Every time I go to a theater, is my f- most exciting times is seeing a Christopher Nolan movie for the first time. It happens to me every time in the credits roll and the, the we see Nicole Kidman's face eventually <laughs> and then we see the Sin Copy logo. I t- I've talked about this before in past episodes, but I cannot wait because just the feeling I get when watching Christopher Nolan movies in theaters, especially in IMAX, which you have to see this in, it's so special. And there's no other filmmaker I think does that what he does does what he does like that level. Well, his films are events in themselves because his fans are very passionate. And always turn out. It's uh, I can't think of any current filmmaker who makes films that are so successful on a regular basis. Like it's there, his films consistent consistently get a lot of butts and seats. But what's really different, what's different about him is that, especially recently, his films are really unique, uh, original stories. They aren't IPs. They're not based off of something before. And so I think he's really stretching his his um, storytelling chops. He's not ad- adapting a novel. He's not adapting a comic book character. Dunkirk was really special. Interstellar was fantastic. Inception, I think, is still a special film in his filmography. And then going down this route of the story of Oppenheimer, which is a very challenging story. And it's a very complex story. And a lot of people clearly aren't comfortable with the movie being made about this, uh, the Manhattan Project. So I think it's uh, commendable for him to be like, I'm still pushing the boundaries of myself as a filmmaker and as a writer. I'm not taking the easy route out. 
I'm not just signing on to do a Bond film. I'm not just signing on to do what have you. I'm making, I'm still making challenging stories for audiences. And I think he just does that to prevent himself from getting bored, for prevent himself from getting uh, stale or plateauing in any way, and always pushing the boundaries of storytelling. For successful filmmakers, I mean, obviously you got to talk about James Cameron. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, three yeah, movies yeah. in the last 22, 23 years all making over a billion, but that's a huge gap in between his films, and obviously he's working off the Avatar franchise. But more cons- consistency, you could say, with Chris Nolan because he's made almost all of his all of his movies have come out in this century. Memento yeah. was two thousand. Following technically came out what like 1998, 1999. But all of his studio feature length films have come out in this century. So for filmmakers of in terms of how many films they made and the how much money they've made back, it's probably Christopher Nolan in terms of just. The consistency, not and overall if you, box. If you aggregate box office and uh, claim for audiences, I mean, who else is higher for like on, on a scale for both of those things? Nolan's so beloved, and I, I loved how you brought up how his fans always come out. They always show up, and he's got fans everywhere, and no one comes to a Nolan movie. With, no one comes to original IPs like they go to Nolan movies. It's absurd, even though he's made movies, obviously, with background IPs, whether it's The Prestige was a book that he based the script off of. Insomnia was a script that he did not write. Batman, obviously, that trilogy. Insomnia also, sorry, was in, uh, it was uh, based on a, a Swedish film called Insomnia. Gotcha, I didn't know that. Yeah, Stellan Sarsgaard starred in it. Oh, no way. Yeah, of course he did. Yeah, it was a big hit in Sweden, and so Warner Brothers bought the rights and made their own uh, American adaptation of did it. Did you know that he starred in every single Swedish movie ever made? <laughs> <laughs> and then, obviously, going forward, Inception was... And Memento is a, a, a story written off his brother's short story that he wrote the screenplay based off of. But he actually finished the screenplay before his brother Jonathan Nolan finished the short story, which is a really interesting story. He kind of went his own route after they discussed the plot and the ending of that. But then going forward to Inception, Interstellar. Interstellar was a script and story that was based off a screenplay his brother wrote. And the, But Inter- Inception's completely Christopher Nolan's original idea. $800 million box office. That's absolutely absurd. Crazy. I mean, you could say M. Night Shyamalan has kind of a, diff- a similar track record. You can compare them in terms of very original concepts and ideas with... M Night has very solid box offices for. A oh yeah, yeah. Especially if you're comparing because, just box offices. Yeah, but yeah. In, in terms of filmmaking, though, yeah. original ideas usually yeah, yeah, yeah. Are interesting concepts that kind of pique your curiosity in ways that really seldom other filmmakers do. Besides these two, but then we're going to historical films with Dunkirk and now with our with J.R. Robert Oppenheimer, a biopic basically, which which is going to be based off a book that was written about this situation called. The tr- called American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer by Martin Sherwin and Kai Bird. This is a Pulitzer-winning book and is being adapted, obviously, into this film by Christopher Nolan, who's writing the screenplay based off of that. And I think it's really fascinating to tackle such a controversial figure like J. Robert Oppen- Oppenheimer, not only when dealing with the atomic bomb situation, but all the things that happened to in his life before he was in charge of the Manhattan Project and working at Los Alamos, which we'll get into in a little bit. But Oppenheimer, the film, comes out on July 21st, 2023. And we know the incredible marketing campaign that's been going on, whether it's the digital global trailer that's been released on YouTube and on the internet, the IMAX-only trailer, which you cannot find online. I searched for like Same. an hour. I couldn't find it anywhere. 
but it was an incredible trailer that was very specific just to IMAX releases with Avatar and also with Nope. I preferred it over the regular trailer for sure. And we also got that original teaser that you can still watch on YouTube. And actually, Universal Pictures, who are making distributing. distributing this film for the first time with Christopher Nolan instead of Warner Brothers, they actually have a video on their YouTube that's just a recurring loop live of the original teaser, which is very different than the teaser that was released that's about a minute and a half long. It also has a countdown on it. Mm-hmm. And I think they've been doing a phenomenal job with the marketing so far. Uh, the IMAX trailer was really sensational. And the domestic trailer that they released online was a very good trailer. I'm expecting uh, a long trailer to be released sometime in the spring this year. I think maybe March or April we'll see a final trailer leading up to the film's release in June. And so keep keep an eye out for a bigger trailer showcasing more of the story, uh, more characters as well. Because they barely showed the ensemble cast in the trailers. It was mostly just Killian Murphy and Matt Damon. Uh, took the bulk of screen time in the IMAX trailer. And then we got Killian Murphy, a little bit RDJ, and some different kind of scenarios, but mostly Killian in the online trailer that they released domestically and around the world. So the IMAX trailer had quite a bit of Matt Damon in it, and I was surprised to see how little they used of him in the other trailer. I actually broke down each trailer real quick, if I can go over them sure. for the audience listening. So we had that first teaser trailer. This one felt like a horror film. We have these intense, loud sounds, these banging noises, and that rising cello that was remnant of the Dark Knight that seems to be a theme, a musical thematic element that Ludwig might use in this film. Ludwig Göransson's doing the music instead of Hans Zimmer because our boy Hans is still busy on Dune. Dune! Dune. I'm sure the next film that Nolan makes, they'll find time to work together. Sure, yeah. there's, so still, that, there's, there's the rumors they're fake. They're not fighting. They're not like they didn't have a falling out. They're best buds! They're best buds. And I saw an interview. Nolan did a Q&A with Denis Villeneuve for Dune and he talked about, he talked really well about Hans and he said let's talk about what you and my good friend my old buddy Hans Zimmer did together he stole him away from yeah. me for a couple of years <laughs> that's all it is I'm sure they'll work again very soon now this teaser again felt like a horror movie it's very intense and we get voiceover from Multiple characters where I'm assuming the first line is Emily Blunt, who plays his wife, which we'll get into the cast in a little bit. And she says, the world is changing, reforming. This is your moment. This is where we have tons of smoke, like plumes of smoke and fire everywhere. It's really fascinating. And how can this man who sees so much be so blind from another actor? And then another actor says, the force from which the sun draws its power has been loose. Next line. You gave them the power to destroy themselves. It made him the most important man who ever lived, the man who moved the earth. And this teaser trailer obviously hinted at there's going to be some sort of back and forth in terms of time. And I would hope to see a nonlinear story structure from Christopher Nolan, which we really haven't gotten from him from a little while. Dunkirk was triptych storytelling, but going back, even Interstellar was a very rare linear storytelling script from from uh, from uh, Christopher Nolan. So I would love to see him going the memento route. It seems like... The future might be in black and white of or present day events of the film or maybe going back with color because yeah. he's co- he's co- combining black and white film with colored film, which we'll also get into in a little bit because they developed some new tech for that. And also the, the first act of Batman Begins, it looks like it might take that approach. Which seems, I love when he tells that kind of storytelling. Next, the global trailer was the one that you can watch on YouTube as well. And this also had a huge thematic element of fire and explosions and and just, just these clouds of smoke and and just what what it seems like he tried to create the sun practically, and it seems kind of like a blend visually of 2001 A Space Odyssey, The Tree of Life, and Interstellar. I can't wait to see what <laughs> they came up with with the practical effects for this film. And this trailer, which is the, the main trailer right now, is all voiceover 
of Killian Murphy as J. Robert Oppenheimer. Terrific voice that he developed for this yeah. role. And in the in the trailer, he says, we imagine a future and our imaginings horrify us. They won't fear it until they understand it. And they won't understand it until they've used it. Theory will only take you so far. I don't know if we can be trusted with such a weapon, but we have no choice. Is anyone ever going to tell the truth about what's happening here? And so this trailer obviously insinuates that there's a lot of controversy, obviously, around the development of the Manhattan Project, why it was created, as well as what happened to Oppenheimer after his years of working for the government when he was basically rendered a communist sympathizer and just kind of attacked by the government from a, a, an ethical and a professional level. And he was kind of, you could say, like banned from government oversight and positions until he was basically forgiven and kind of pardoned several decades later. We'll talk about that later on as well. But then we see this trailer it teases the controversy of the ramifications of what happened politically to him as well. And they also released uh, one more trailer. It was a 30-second spot that took place during uh, the AFC Championship football game. And it was just it was very small. I think it might have been 20 seconds. A lot of the same footage we've seen before, but the line that Kelly Murphy says as Alpenheimer at the end adds a little bit more. He says, because he says... I don't know if we can trust ourselves with this. Is that what you just said? That yeah, line? something like that. But he says, I know. I don't know if we can trust ourselves with this, but I know we can't trust the Nazis. Now, that's a very telling line because it actually displays the motivations of the entire Manhattan Project. And we're going to get into both the film uh, as well as the Manhattan Project historically. So we did a lot of research, and I've already known quite a bit about it, World War II. I've done plenty of research over the years. I, I know you have just like off and on reading about it. So we have some familiarity with it, but also we want to tell and inform you all why the Manhattan Project was created, what exactly they were doing, and why the atom atomic bomb was detonated. There are actually two atomic bombs detonated, actually. Hiroshima and Nagasaki were both bombed. We'll get into all that, the historical, the historical narrative as well as the plans for the film that we think that might be implied in the story. And also, we're going to get into the cast and crew, what we're very excited about for this film. So much to talk about. Yeah. And then there's still the IMAX trailer that mm -hmm. we have to break down. Oh, this, yeah. This was a two and a half minute trailer. Again, you can only see this before Avatar The Way of Water and oh, IMAX, yeah. or obviously Jordan Peele. He premiered this the trailer originally with IMAX screenings of Nope. Remember, it was actually after the AMC ads or like the after the theater ads. So, like, after Nicole Kidman came on screen, and then you got the ads and everything. Then it went into the trailer for Oppenheimer, which was so incredible to see. And then, obviously, with the Avatar Way of Water. And so this one we were talking about focuses a lot on Matt Damon's character, as well as plenty more of Robert Downey Jr. But we have some more situations where Oppenheimer is warned that the test detonation's chain reaction could incinerate the atmosphere if its magnitude exceeds expectations. A message he passes along to the Manhattan Project's no-nonsense director, Leslie Groves, played by Matt Damon. So it's fascinating to see more motivation of and more potential the whole aspect fallouts of, of yeah. there's like a less than 1% chance that they would have incinerated the Earth's atmosphere and destroyed life on Earth as they know it. But it was still there. I mean, that's still, is that a risk worth taking? And then a great quote from the trailer is, are we saying there's a chance that when we push that button, we destroy the world? And then the answer is from Oppenheimer, chances are year zero. The troubled scientist ominously replies to his incredulous boss. So 
virtually not going to happen. But still, the fact that there was a chance that the Earth's atmosphere could have been incinerated is so fascinating to make a film about, not mm-hmm. only just R.J. Oppenheimer, but to bring in the motivations behind why they were doing it. Because obviously you read about this in a history book or in class or you learn about it on the Internet. It's very simplified and it's a very nuanced issue. And there are very nuanced motivations behind why they had to do the bomb and, and why they had to like race against other countries to do it because eventually someone was going to do it. So that's a great quote we, that you I, brought up. We can just talk about that real quick before we get into the film and cast. Yeah, let's do it. So the Manhattan Project was formed by the Allied forces. So what happened was the Allied forces, they weren't like really working together. Like they were all, they were allies, but, and they were fighting the Axis forces, which was Germany, Italy, and Japan. Soviet Union had eventually joined up with the Allied forces after the Nazis invaded Soviet Union. So that, so when Hitler turned on Soviet Union, Soviet Union joined the Allied forces in 1941. So it was just, it was Italy, Japan, and Germany were the Allied forces. And Axis. Axis forces. (laughs) Say that again. Say that again. Japan, Italy, and Germany were the Axis forces. And we were Americans. Western civilization, like uh, England, they were all part of the Allied forces. And so what happened was every country was doing research, physicists, researchers, scientists. They were trying to develop weaponry to use with uh, nuclear fission as the source of energy. Now, nuclear fission had been uh, experimented with and found that while using uranium, you can possibly create a, a huge monumental weapon using uranium. Uranium was the only material that could really... Uh, solidify the use of nuclear fission and an atom bomb relies on the energy created when an atom is split in the neuron uh, it, when the neuron when the ne- neurons enter the atom it explodes and there's a chain reaction where this monumental uh, amount of energy is released and then researchers and scientists and physicists figured out that we could eventually put this into a small contact space uh, most notably a bomb like, like a, although the bomb was very large but when you think about how big the explosion is it's relatively small the the space that Every, the materials are put inside. So uranium became the key, and researchers from all over the world were trying to figure out how to do this with every country. And eventually, everyone was very scared that Germany would come up with the, the solving the problem because everybody knew that Germany was uh, gung-ho about trying to make an atom bomb, trying to make a weapon of mass destruction that they could use to their advantage. And so Britain and, and America were making big strides in developing their own research and trying to solve this problem as well. And then eventually Britain and America joined forces and were like basically combined their minds and then got some other allied forces countries as well together. And they formed the Manhattan Project in America. They also got a lot of German uh, deserters who were scientists who added a lot of help to that workload of physicists who left Germany to help the allied forces. And that basically was the basis of the Manhattan Project. Essentially, the allied forces were trying to make an atomic bomb before Germany made an atomic bomb. It was like basically kind of like the space race against Soviet Union, but it was a, a nuclear arms race of development against Germany. Well, it's really fascinating stuff. Yeah. I didn't realize that every country was like trying to figure out the atomic bomb. Yeah, and Oppenheimer was not, he did not create the atom bomb. He did not create nuclear fission. fission. It was already discovered years before. What he was, he was the director of the Manhattan Project. And he, he oversaw the entire development of the atom bomb. So we Over 3,000 employees and everything. And, well, technically, there were hundreds of thousands of American employees working in factories all over the country. They were sworn to secrecy, and they didn't even know what they were doing. But in the Manhattan Project itself, in that location, there were 3,000 people like working in that Manhattan in Project. In Los Alamos? Yeah, in the Manhattan Project area. But around the country, there are factories of hundreds of thousands of workers developing the materials, uh, 
to be used for the atom bomb. Most notably, uranium. Uh, uranium had to be built in large, um, as much uranium as possible had to be created to make these bombs. So it was actually almost a million people working on the Manhattan Project, although most of them didn't know what they were doing exactly. And obviously, J. Robert Oppenheimer has the coined name, the name of father of the atomic bomb. And that's because the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki were the detonation of two atomic bombs over these cities on the 6th and 9th of August in 1945 by the United States. And I feel like whenever people talk about the atomic bombings and why they bombed Japan, people always bring up Pearl Harbor and they say it was a kind of a reaction, but Pearl Harbor, that happened in 1941. So it's not like it was like an immediate reaction. They hit us, we hit them first. It's a lot more nuanced and complex. Pearl Harbor was a catalyst for America entering World War II, but the reason for bombing Japan was, so at this point, like I said, Soviet Union was part of the Allied forces in 1945. Uh, Italy had surrendered, and Germany had surrendered. And also, Truman, who's going to play a major part in the film, Robert Downey Jr. plays Truman. No, it's uh, Gary Oldman plays I'm sorry. Harry S. Truman. S Truman. Truman's going to have a major part in the film as like a delegate of diplomacy. He, he when America and the Allied forces finally figured out the atom bomb and they built it, they warned other countries. So they went to Soviet Union and told Stalin, we built a weapon that will has never seen the light of day. No, nobody has seen a weapon like this, and it's more powerful than anything that has ever been conceived by humankind, and we will use it if we have to. And so Truman and the Americans spoke to several countries, and uh, uh, China, Britain, and, and America sent uh, a document to Japan, the leaders of Japan, saying, asking Japan to surrender. So Japan, at this point, was the only country who had not surrendered as part of the Axis forces. They were still very much at war with everyone and they were anticipating soviet union and germany fighting and then one of them coming out on top and then japan was going to battle one of them along with one along with america so that was japan's plan and so japan had no intention of surrendering even after the allied forces sent to japan sent at japan the documents asking them to surrender saying we have a weapon we're going to use it if you don't surrender japan refused to surrender so japan what they were doing was they were fortifying their country, and they were uh, employing basically every man, woman, and child to become part of the army. Uh, and they and they basically were preparing for a final standoff, and were in, in preparing for a major invasion. And their plan was to just go out and essentially, in so many words, they were going to sacrifice every man, woman, and child in defeat. And what they were doing was they were battling a war of attrition, and a war of attrition is to fight for so long that you eventually wear out your opponent, cause so many deaths on your opponent's side that you eventually cause them to give up. That was their plan, to have the Allied forces continue invading Japan, continue invading Japan, and killing so many members of the Allied forces, America, Americans, British, what have you, that eventually the Allied forces would give up. But the Allied forces didn't want to give up on the war because Japan had invaded many countries. They invaded over a dozen countries in Southeast Asia. Uh, Japan invaded Thailand, Vietnam, Cambodia, Hong Kong, a bunch of other smaller Pacific islands. So they had taken up quite a lot of territory and were even forcing all of these nations they invaded and took over to learn Japanese, to become Japanese citizens. And so the rest of the world couldn't sit back and let Japan continue carrying on this way. So they had to do something. And when Japan refused to surrender, and threatened to fight to the last child, that's when the Allied forces made the decision to end up bombing Hiroshima. And even after the bombing of Hiroshima, 
Japan still refused to surrender, and then the Allied forces bombed Nagasaki, and then after the bombing of Nagasaki, that's when Japan finally surrendered. Five days later, on August 14th, was the surrender of Japan, and obviously, you know, there are, are nuanced and complex details from both sides of this oh, yeah. entire conflict. Yeah. This isn't 100% a story. We're kind of just running through the footnotes of what we have learned from our research if there's more that you want to add or correct us on in terms of the historical ramifications and accuracy and facts of what we're discussing right now, please hit us up. Send us a DM, an email. We'd love to hear if we made a mistake somewhere or if we didn't focus solely on something that we should have when we're explaining everything. So definitely add to this if you can. We're learning it all pretty much at the same time as you as we go through it. Now, talking about J. Robert Oppenheimer. Who was this guy? So J. Robert Oppenheimer was born in 1904 in New York, New York, and he died in 1967 to throat cancer. He was an American theoretical physicist and science administrator noted as the director of the Los Alamos Laboratory in wartime from 1943 to 1945 and during the development of the atomic bomb as the director for the Institute for Advanced Study, also in Princeton from 1947 to 1966. He was the son of a German immigrant who had made his fortune by importing textiles in New York City. During his undergraduate studies at Harvard University, Oppenheimer excelled in Latin, Greek, physics, and chemistry, published poetry, and studied Eastern philosophy. After graduating in 1925, he sailed for England to do research at the Cavendish Laboratory at the University of Cambridge, which under the leadership of Lord Ernest Rutherford had an international reputation for its pioneering studies on the atomic structure. In the 1920s, the new quantum and relativity theories were engaging the attention of science. The, that mass was equivalent to energy and that matter could both be wave-like and corpuscular, carried implications seen dimly at the time. Oppenheimer's early research was devoted to particular, in particular to energy processes of subatomic particles, including electrons, positrons, and cosmic rays. He also did groundbreaking work on neutron stars and black holes. He's one of the first people to actually theorize and bring into the discussions into the scientific community the existence of black holes, which is really fascinating. Obviously, Christopher Nolan loves black holes, so <laughs> he's going to tell a story about this. I guarantee we get references of black holes in this, Oppenheimer became credited with being a founding father of the American School of Theoretical Physics. He did important research in astrophysics, nuclear physics, spectroscopy, and quantum field theory. In November 1940, Oppenheimer married Catherine Puning Harrison, who was going to be played by Emily Blunt, his wife in the film. A radical Berkeley student, and by May 1941, they had their first child, Peter. When World War II began, Oppenheimer eagerly became involved in the efforts to develop an atomic bomb, which were already taking up much of the time and facilities of Lawrence's Radiation Laboratory at Berkeley. He was invited to take over work on neutron calcula calculations, and in June 1942, General Leslie Groves appointed Oppenheimer as the scientific director of the Manhattan Project. Under Oppenheimer's guidance, the laboratories at Los Alamos were constructed. There, he brought the best minds in physics to work on the problem of creating an atomic bomb. In the end, he was managing more than 3,000 people as well as tackling theoretical and mechanical problems that arose. He's often referred to as the father of the atomic bomb. The joint work of the scientists at Los Alamos resulted in the first nuclear explosion at Alamogordo on July 16, 1945, which Oppenheimer named Trinity. Now, this is the atomic explosion that Christopher Nolan and his production team 
helped, I mean, created practically for the film, the Trinity Explosion. They also, there's no details on how they did it. They actually did not create a nuclear bomb. They didn't use plutonium uranium or anything like that. They did it practically, but still, we don't know how they did it. I'm sure it was a giant explosion nonetheless. We'll talk about big explosions in films, but I'm sure after the movie comes out, we'll learn all the details of how they did it. Oh, they're making a whole feature, I'm sure. They're keeping it secret. And Oppenheimer later remarked that the explosion brought to mind words from the Bhagavad Gita. Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. And then in August 1945, that's when the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki occurred. So now, that was his life up until the atomic bomb. Mm-hmm. And it looks like the film is going to take place with both the development of the Manhattan Project until its conclusion with the bombs. And then also an after the fact kind of... I'm not sure if it's if he's in trouble with the government or if it's just some committee. Well, I have some it, details. To okay, go over yeah. That. So what exactly is going on? So this on is there? what I'm assuming is the black and white section of the film. So the joint mm-hmm. effort of outstanding scientists at Los Alamos culminated in the first nuclear explosion. I already went over that. And then Oppenheimer, in October of the same year, resigned his post. In 1947, he became head of the Institute for Advanced Study and served from 1947 until 1952 as chairman of the General Adversary Committee of the Atomic Energy Commission which in October 1949 opposed development of the hydrogen bomb. In, on December, in December 1953, he was notified of a military security report unfavorable to him and was accused of having associated with communists in the past of delaying the naming of Soviet agents and of opposing the building of the hydrogen bomb. A security hearing declared him not guilty of treason, but ruled that he should not have access to military secrets. As a result, his contract as advisor to the Atomic Energy Commission was canceled. The Federation of American Scientists immediately came to to his defense with a protest against the trial. Oppenheimer was made the worldwide symbol of the scientists who, while trying to resolve the moral problems that arose from the scientific discovery, becomes the victim of a witch hunt. He spent the last years of his life working out ideas on the relationship between society and science. In 1963, President Lyndon B. Johnson presented Oppenheimer with the Enrico Fermi Award for Atomic Energy Commission. Oppenheimer retired the Institute it retired from the Institute of Advanced Study in 1966. And then in nineteen in 2022, United States Secretary Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm cleared Oppenheimer of allegations that led to the revocation of his security clearance, citing as the reason a flawed investigation. Okay, so I'm guessing it will take place. Those black and white sequences will most likely be the trial, I suppose. And I'm, that's what it seemed like from the trailer. That's what I already gathered from watching it. It seems like we can guarantee that those those times of McCarthyism and the bureaucracy corruption that was running through the government came after him. I'm sure there'll be a huge theme in the film. Absolutely. And what I find fascinating from the trailer is how Nolan's trying to visually depict what's happening inside the uh, the explosion of an uh, atom bomb, not just the fire and, and plumes of clouds of, of, of energy, but what's happening on a molecular level. It looks like he's clearly depicting neurons, electrons, like just seeing them and the chain reaction it it creates, and what's interesting is he it just from the trailer from they're cutting between sparks of fire and then cutting to what looks like molecules of atoms and neutrons and electrons and how uh, similar they are, and I I think the visual con- contrast of those images is really fascinating and it looks like he is going to do some kind of visual depiction of what's happening inside of an atomic bomb during the explosion and the nuclear fission actually appearing on screen. Also, I forgot to credit 
Britannica for the information that I was going over. So thanks so much thanks, to that Britannica. website. You guys are awesome. I can't wait to see it visually. It looks stunning. And it looks nuanced too because what Christopher Nolan does with all of his movies, no matter how big the scope is or how wild the technology, it's always a personal story. It's always somehow love's involved. I'm sure love will tie into this at some point. Time might be a factor, but it's always personal. And he brings down he's, – he's going to tell a story about this person, J. Robert Oppenheimer, not about the Manhattan Project, it seems like. I think it's going to be more of kind of like a character study on him as well as the backdrop of it developing the bomb and, and running the Manhattan Project. But you can bet your butt that it's going to be an emotional journey for this character. And he always, I mean, even in his big extravagant films, it's characters still very much present in his stories and in the structure of, of crafting his screenplay story always supersedes like how big the explosions are and how, how massive the scale of action scenes are. And so I like this, the idea that he's doing something that is gearing towards a moment of action but it's all going to be character. And I'm really fascinated to see him making a film that is mostly character driven. And then we'll have, you know, a couple of moments of monumental action with sequences of the explosions. But other than that, I think I'm really looking forward to see him directing a lower scale kind of dynamic for film. I wonder if the climax of the film will be the Trinity bomb test. I, I'm guessing that'll probably be the climax. They probably won't show the bombings, Hiroshima, the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings. That's my guess because mm. when you watch the trailer in IMAX, it was very intense, and half that trailer is devoted to what looks like the f the final test of the Trinity bomb testings in that explosion and how intense everything was. And like the guy who's shaking his hand is whose hand is shaking is about to push that big red button. I wonder if that will be the climax of the film, possibly. And it might be too disturbing and off putting and offensive to show the bombing of the I cities. I think so too. Because the last time you saw like, I mean, you've seen nuclear explosions in films in like T2, but like, it, but like that was just like, it was a fictional explosion. You know what I mean? Watchmen. It, it wasn't, it wasn't an actual historical event that we're looking at. So I think that, I think it's, it might be, it's possible that they won't even show that as well. I agree. And speaking of the bomb and recreating it, I have a great quote from Christopher Nolan, which comes from Total Films, 2023 preview issue of the film according to Nolan I think recreating the Trinity test the first nuclear weapon detonation in New Mexico without the use of computer graphics was a huge challenge to take on Andrew Jackson my visual effects supervisor I got him on board early on was looking at how we could do a lot of the visual elements of the film practically from representing quantum dynamics and quantum physics to the Trinity test itself to recreating with my team Los Alamos up on a mesa in New Mexico in extraordinary weather, a lot of which was needed for the film in terms of the very harsh conditions out there. There were huge practical details and again, in challenges. We don't know the details of how they did this yet. But speaking of explosions in film, the largest practical explosion in cinema was created for the 2015 James Bond film Spectre that utilized 72 pounds of explosives and thousands of gallons of fuel, setting a Guinness World Record that was surpassed that surpassed Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor explosion that was equivalent to 68.47 tons of TNT. For comparison, the mother of all bombs detonated in Afghanistan is equal to 11 tons. The real training test was the equivalent of 25 kilotons of TNT. The challenge in these cases, as with Spectre, is that there's usually only one chance to get the effort right. Yeah, they did the Spectre one in one take with Daniel Craig and Leah Seydoux standing there. Wrong as, actress. As it, as it was it, oh, Leah, I'm sorry. You're I was thinking, thinking of, of Quantum of Solace. Yeah. <laughs> 
right actress. Spectre, bruh. Spectre, bruh. Spectre, bruh. <laughs> and they did it. Sam Mendes shot it with the background exploding the entire facilities. And it was all in camera. And they did it in one. I'm sure they set up a bunch of cameras in different angles just to have it. But it worked really well with that being in one shot, this one take. Another cool fact about Oppenheimer in this film is that they developed new IMAX film and cameras because it's going to be the first film ever shot with black and white IMAX film. It's never been done before. It's always been colored film. And so they had to actually develop, and a great quote from Christopher Nolan, I very much love the structural assistance in the aesthetic change of shifting between color and black and white when I had, like I had on Memento. Again, this is from Total Film. I'd always been looking for a reason to go back to that. In the case of Oppenheimer and the way in which we tell this story, which clearly we're going to have a nonlinear structure here, it sounds like, it's very subjectively told, but with a more objective story strand that intertwines with that. It was really the perfect time to go back to that device that I loved so much. That's really fascinating because Memento, again, was shot on 35mm anamorphic, but after shooting pioneering sequences in the dark night on IMAX cameras, Nolan had become a champion of large format film. He's really been the catalyst of that development in in film right now. I know we always talk up IMAX and blah, 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 but IMAX film, it is large format film. It is so much bigger than 35 millimeter film. And just each each frame of film is just so huge. And it allows for more, basically more, essentially more information to be put into the image. And that it's the highest quality image that can be physically put on, that can be physically captured right now. It is the highest quality. And I'm really looking forward to seeing that in the black and white. It's not like you don't want to see color film just desaturated to be black and white. You want to see it actually shot on black and white film. Nolan understands the the quality difference that it would make if you're actually filming it with actual black and white film stock as opposed to color stock and then sucking the color out of it. So I'm really interested to see what black and white film looks like from the IMAX scale. And large format film is just so beautiful and stunning. And what's really cool about it is you can see the difference in quality on just a small scale version of the photo or or still you can see just like on your phone if you're looking at a still shot a medium for on large format and you compare it to a, a still shot in like HD it's like crazy the difference in quality just even on that small scale of a representation of the image how the quality really seeps through and then but to see it on the gigantic screen shot on the correct film stock. I'm very excited for this. And that big challenge was they'd never done it before. There's never been a black and white IMAX film developed to do this on large format. So back to the quote from Christopher Nolan. So we challenged the people at Kodak and Photochem to make this work for us. And they stepped up. For the first time ever, we were able to shoot IMAX film in black and white. And the results were thrilling and extraordinary. As soon as Hoyt Van Hoytema, his cinematography has been working with since Interstellar, and I saw the first test come in. We just knew that this was a format that we were immediately in love with. So I cannot wait to see them pushing the boundaries of cinematography and large format cameras and film to see what it looks like in our true IMAX representations. It's going to be sensational. I hope they have 75 millimeter releases in theaters. Oh, they will. Like, I hope this we is going to make money so they can afford it. And also Hoyt and Nolan, they both have, they both own really cool lenses that they like to use in their films. And uh, Hoyt has developed a lot of really cool glass for his camera work. And then Nolan has purchased over the years a few really interesting lenses. And my favorite that he likes to use is this really special old 50 millimeter lens that he's had uh, retrofitted. And you can you can tell it's shot. You can tell this shot in some of his films like that. That shot of Tom Hardy next standing next to the burning plane. 
the, over the, the behind the shoulder, the behind, both those shots, yeah. but like where it's like slowly pushing in on him. It's like it has a very shallow depth of field, and so it's kind of it's not like the whole the whole image isn't in focus, and you can see that in a few other moments, like the Joker shot of his first reveal, where that's kind of out of focus. He uses that shot quite a bit, but he'll only use it on special cases. Anne Hathaway, um, she cra- she landed on that planet, and she's looking out into the distance, and we're just slowly pushing in on her. And it's that beauty, beautiful 50 millimeter lens that Nolan just saves for the right moments. And I've already saw it in a couple of shots of the trailer that I've seen. But it was I saw it on one color close-up of Oppenheimer and then a black and white close-up of Oppenheimer. So I can't wait to see these really cool lenses that Hoyt and both Nolan own that they like to use in their projects. I would love to now get into this insane cast, maybe the best cast ever assembled for a film. But first, Anthony's going to tell us about this episode sponsor. This spon- this episode is sponsored <laughs> by MoviePosters.com, the number one place to get your posters online today. Go ahead and use our promo code Raiders10 to get 10% off your order today. They have a huge selection of pretty much every movie and TV show in their poster library as well as all sorts of sizes framing and even backlighting for your poster needs we have a bunch of these amazing posters super high quality very affordable don't get your posters on amazon it's not the same go to movieposters.com if there's a movie fan in your life it's the best present to get them and if you want to decorate your house or your bedroom with your favorite movie movie memorabilia the best place to get your posters is at MoviePosters.com. So be sure to use our promo code there, Raiders10, and you'll get 10% off your order today. Now let's get into this absurd cast for Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. Well, before, there's a, there's a couple great memes about this. Okay. And my favorite one was there's a meme of, of Leon's, the professional, so Gary Oldman's character. And when one of the one of his crew goes, "Who do you want me to bring?" He says, "Everyone." Bring me everyone. And, he just, and then the guy goes, "Who?" And he go he just turns to him. He goes, "Everyone." <laughs> and was, the meme said, "Nolan, when he wants to cast Oppenheimer, it's crazy." <laughs> First of all, we have in this film five Oscar winners with Casey Affleck, Kenneth Branagh, Matt Damon, Gary Oldman, and Rami Malek, as well as three Oscar nominees, Robert Downey Jr., Tom Conti, who plays Albert Einstein, and Florence Pugh. Michael Caine will not be in this film. He retired from acting. This is like the first time Nolan's not had him in a movie since The Prestige. So for top build cast, though, we have obviously Killian Murphy as the title role, J. Robert Oppenheimer. This is the sixth collaboration between Killian Murphy and Christopher Nolan, including Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, Inception, Dark Knight Rises, and Dunkirk. And Killian was one of the top three candidates to be Batman and Bruce Wayne in that original trilogy, but ended up going to uh, Christian Bale, but he did stay on as the Scarecrow. And when you think about it, this is Killian Murphy's first really major leading role as a leading actor in a in a film in I, Hollywood I think, ever. In Hollywood, yeah, the, like, a, sh- like a major film. Well, the wind that shakes the barley. He's the lead. I mean, like a huge blockbuster. Well, I would say in um, in a Hollywood film. Okay, yeah, yeah, in yeah. America. So, but it's yeah. it's gonna be his like he has first a, testing. He, he has a, a, a several leading roles in UK films. Yeah, that's why in, I said in ma- Ireland. That's why I said major, though. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, well, they're still good. They're still major. Uh, no, but major is yeah. like a huge budget, huge, okay, gotcha. huge audience, gotcha. huge, co- huge commercial success, or gotcha. at least exposure. Okay, all right. I all mean, right. I love independent films from Ireland, but like they're not getting the exposure. Uh, of no, Oppenheimer. I understand what you're saying. I understand <laughs> what you're saying. I thought I worded it well enough. I, I don't think you did. Next, <laughs> we have Emily Blunt, who will be playing Catherine Oppenheimer. Now, Catherine was an activist and scientist in one of the many links between Oppenheimer and the, cumin- cu- the communist 
ideology, not the cumin cuminist that's a spice. <laughs> <laughs> that damn cumin. Love cumin. Those cumins. Then we have Matt Damon, who plays Lieutenant General Leslie Groves. We brought him up earlier. Groves was the military director of the Manhattan Project, and he also oversaw the construction of the Pentagon. Then Robert Downey Jr., who plays Louis Strauss. Strauss and Oppenheimer found themselves on opposing sides of the debate about the developments of the hydrogen bomb in the late 1940s. Like Oppenheimer, Strauss would go on to serve as chairman for the United States Atomic Energy Commission. And I think it was just falsely reported for months that he was playing Truman. It must have been. I remember seeing many articles saying that he was playing Truman. Because that's definitely Gary yeah. Gary Oldman. So then we have Florence Pugh, who plays Gene Tatlock. Tatlock was one of several points of connection between Oppenheimer and humanism. <laughs> Communism. <laughs> and the two were locked in an affair that would spark off on and on for years. And I love how in the IMAX trailer we got a little more... Uh, characterization of Oppenheimer and he's been criticized as like a womanizer and all these things you wouldn't imagine like this brilliant scientist to be which is uh, I can't wait to meet this character on screen then we have Rami Malek who is just playing a scientist don't know much about the role he's in Benny Safdie is playing Edward Teller a Hungarian physicist who helped create the first hydrogen bomb actual person who existed Gary Oldman again will be playing US President Harry S. Truman and then listen to the rest of this cast I won't say their character names. I'll just say the actors. But before you get into this cast, I think it's just it's so impressive to get Florence Pugh and Rami Malek to just to play in supporting roles because they're two of the biggest stars right now. Rami's coming off his Oscar win and doing a Bond villain. But I think everyone, if given the chance, is more than happy to work with Nolan at a subsidiary level, even if they're not even close to being the lead of the film, to, just to work on a Nolan film. I think that... Uh, actors will jump to that with so much excitement. That's why when I list off all these actors and actresses, you'll be shocked how many are in the film, not to mention the A-listers and, and Academy Award nominees and winners we already have said. So we also have Josh Hartnett. And now Josh Hartnett actually being cast in this film is sort of a full circle moment because he was one of the finalists to play Batman in the Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy, but he respectively eventually declined that role. He wasn't like offered, he didn't win it, but he just I think he just didn't want to be in the running anymore. But uh, he always, I guess, regretted that. Who wouldn't? <laughs> Dane Dehan, Jack Quaid, Matthew Modine, Dylan Arnold, Alden Enric. So right now we got huge stars, especially with Jack Quaid from The Boys. Dane Dehan's huge. Matthew Modine, everyone loves him from Stranger Things. But also, I mean, let's be honest, Full Metal Jack, he's terrific in that. David Crumholtz, Michael Angarano, Kenneth Branagh. He's already, like, we're down to Kenneth Branagh here after, like, 15 Jesus, names. Kenneth Branagh is, like, the 15th build. David Desmalchian, who works with Villeneuve a lot. He's been also in The Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises. Yeah, yeah. Jason Clark, who's great. <laughs> Josh Peck, Dave, Devin Bostick. Alex Wolf is in this film as well. Tony Goldwyn. Casey Affleck, we're down, like, the 20th building. <laughs> Casey Affleck, an Oscar winner. Scott Grimes, Josh Zuckerman. James D'Arcy, oh my God, Matthias Schweiger, Schweigerfer. So isn't that the kid from Army of the Dead? Matthias Schweiger. Army of the Dead. Uh, what's the Zack Snyder zombie movie? And then oh, the oh the German kid. Yeah, yeah, I, I believe so. Yeah, Chris. Yeah, yeah, it is him. Yeah, Christopher Denham, David Rizdal. He's probably younger than us, and we're calling him kid. I mean, older than us. <laughs> just, that's just what you talk like when you're in Boston. From Boston, <laughs> Guy Burnett, Danny DeFerrari. Luis Lombard, Harrison Gilbertson, Emma Dumont, Gustav Skarsgård, one of the other Skarsgårds. They're all over. They're everywhere. There's so many Skarsgårds. There's like seven, and they're all actors. <laughs> Tron Fausto. You gotta get those. Someone, someone's gonna get those jeans in their in their pool somewhere. 
Ollie Haskivi, and Olivia Thurlby is last cast on this right here. Wow, this this is in, this is insane. So I'm this, just so I curious. I can't believe this is one movie. I'm so curious about many of these roles. Casey Affleck, I'm so curious about. Obviously, he has a smaller role in Interstellar. He plays the the older version of Coop's son, who Timmy Chalamet plays the younger version. And he had not done Manchester by the Sea yet, and he did not win his Oscar yet by then. I don't think in 2014. So I don't think. I think Manchester was 2017. He won. Yeah. So now that he's an Oscar winner, like I wonder what this role is like. I'm also so curious to see Tim Conti as Albert Einstein as well. Who is Tim Conti? Tom Conti. I'm sorry. Tom Conti. Tom Conti. You'll recognize him when you see him. Conti. It's a fascinating role to be playing Albert Einstein. He's uh, but he's an Oscar nominee. He's in The Quick and the Dead, American Dreamer, Full Circle, Ruben okay. Rubin. All right, I don't recognize him, but I'm sure I've seen him in stuff. Uh, either were, but even like to have, I mean, Casey Affleck, Jason Clark, and Kenneth Branagh are like actors that are like twentieth build. That's absolutely insane, and it looks like Josh Peck, who we grew up watching. Obviously, many of you did as well. It looks like he's gonna have. Um, a pretty substantial role as an operator and technician. I'm guessing he's going to be in quite a lot of the film. He's he he's plays a real life scientist yeah. that was part of the Manhattan Project. Because it looks like just from a he's in a couple of shots and it's like he's going to be hands on during all of the operations in the testing. Of yeah, the, as of like the atomic a, bomb. yeah, as like a technician and someone vital to the actual facilitation of these tests. So it looks like Josh has a really big role in this, which I'm really happy for him for. I'm sure half of these roles are made up for the film, but about half of them are real people who existed, and Josh Peck plays one of them. Now, a huge issue, or well not issue, but a story with Christopher Nolan and Oppenheimer. It's the first time he's not making a movie and being distributed by Warner Brothers. Yeah. It'll be the first time he's ever worked with another studio, and he's working with Universal Pictures. They scooped them up immediately because Christopher Nolan decided not to work with Warner Brothers anymore after they really decided to start releasing their movies same day digitally as well as in theaters. And that was not the only factor to make him leave. They, but they ruined the release of Tenet yes, as well. Yes, they ruined the release yeah. of Tenet as well as a lot of other films that could have really you know, benefited their th- those filmmakers and, and crew and cast and everyone like that. So... Because of those decisions by Warner Brothers, that's probably the main reason why he left WB. And this is old Warner Brothers, mind you. I also think that uh, he, I mean, he's he's friends with, he's very good friends with a lot of the other Warner Brothers directors. And so I believe that uh, not doing a theatrical release of Wonder Woman and then messing up Zack Snyder's DC films and then just basically taking him off of the narrative department of his own film and as well as just like there's so many films in 2020 and 2021 by directors that he's probably very close with whose films didn't get the entry release like they uh, hoped for and signed contracts to be done that way. And so I think that uh, watching his friends' films kind of get ruined in their releases was like, I can't, I'm, I'm, I don't trust these people to release my films anymore. And the people who are running Warner Brothers, they did all this without telling anybody. Yeah. So they weren't like communicating with the filmmakers like, hey, your movie that you spent the last four years making, we're going to release it digitally and it's not going to make any money at the box office at all. They didn't communicate. They just did it and decided to do it with these movies. So I think that was really what Christopher Nolan didn't really appreciate or respect because they didn't respect the filmmakers. Yeah, 100%. And then I'm not sure that the Tenet release was done at all with how Christopher Nolan had intended and he had to fight them to get into theaters like they wanted they wanted to put it streaming and he had to really fight them tooth and nail to get it theatrically released and mind you this is 
before the change in management happened last year with Warner Brothers. So, so this is a, the previous management of Warner Brothers that was really facilitating all of these bad decisions uh, for several years that culminated into you, the Warner Brothers film production and DC production just becoming like a big L after one another. A huge L. But of course, it was the lockdown. It was pandemic. No one knew what they were doing. Yeah. We thought we were going to see this permanent shift to digital releases in the studios. We're trying to figure out a way to make or recuperate losses from not releasing films in theaters. Totally understandable decisions made, but still the lack of communication with filmmakers and just doing it, that's really the, that was the straw for Christopher Nolan. Yeah, and a lot of these filmmakers, they're investing in their own pro. They're investing a lot of their own money into these projects as well. Nolan and uh, his wife, they own Syncopy, and Syncopy is the main production studio of his films. And so they throw in, both him and Emma Thompson throw in a bulk load, a boatload of their own money into their film projects. So they are investing a ton. So it makes sense to, if they don't trust the studio anymore for distribution, if I'm making an investment of like $50 million of my own money in five years of my life, yeah, I would want to make sure that the studio has my best interests at heart when they're releasing and distributing the film. And so I think Warner Brothers failed him and Emma. And so they were like, let's take, let's pack up shop. And I, I can only imagine how fast it took to get his, his story bought. I'm and I'm. I wonder what the bidding war was for. It was for funding Oppenheimer. Yeah, yeah. Because what happened was after he left Warner Brothers, he he they basically shopped their movie to a few studios. Warner Universal ended up winning winning the bidding war. I just want to know what the sale was. What was the sale to buy the rights to Oppenheimer the film? I I can only imagine. And how quickly did it happen? Probably like probably, 100, 100 mil plus whatever yeah. you want for a budget. Yeah, probably something silly. So Nolan and his team reached out to every studio. And got the best offer. That's what yeah. that's what Tarantino did um with his with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because nobody wanted to fund it. That's a good point because you know it's a risk like you brought up earlier for Chris Nolan to make this kind of movie, this controversial film about this figure who might who obviously was one of the most important human beings to ever live. You know whether you agree with the situation and what you, whether you agree with and impactful the yeah it, important doesn't mean yeah a good or bad thing yeah. it just means objectively an important figure in human history and civilization yeah. mm -hmm. creating the most powerful weapon to ever exist at the time so it's really fascinating to make a story but it's also risky and when you're risking a story like that in a film you know there will be protests for this film people will tell you not to go see it 100 percent we will tell you to go see it constantly like we have been doing but there will be a backlash before this movie comes out of people telling you not to see it and i understand why people might not understand what the film is about but from what i gathered this looks like an anti-war film and an anti-nuclear weapons film that's what it looks like to me and it seems to be very relevant to this day and age still so i think it's an important film that should be people should be talking about it i think it should it, it will spark conversations for people from every country discussing this idea, this topic. And I think it's it because it's still relevant, it's an important kind of story to tell. But definitely go see Oppenheimer in theaters because it will be an incredible experience. And of course, oh, yeah. you got to see it in IMAX. Why not? And we're, we're not even sponsored by IMAX, but we're telling you always to go see movies, movies in IMAX, especially movies shot in yeah. IMAX, large film format. And oh, yeah. hopefully the first couple of weeks we can get... 75 millimeter screenings projected. I'm sure in LA sure they'll they be able to yeah. go to one or two. That would be an incredible experience because uh, we saw Dunkirk on 75 millimeter film. I've see, I saw Interstellar on 35 millimeter film. So whenever Nolan makes a movie, I try to see it in film. I'm sure they they will do in LA. We'll definitely have some theaters doing it, and I I can't wait to hear Lou Gordon's music for it because he has quickly become one of the most in demand film composers 
and TV composers doing both Mando and the theme for Boba Fett, but also doing Black Panther and uh, last couple of Nolan films. This one in, and then his last one, Tenet, which is a fucking great score. Yeah, he did not do Mandalorian yeah. 3 because of this yeah. movie. So I'm really looking forward to seeing, because ev everything Ludwig has done, except for the Creed films, has been sci-fi. And so I'm really curious to see what he does with a, a historical period piece like this uh, set in the war genre. So I'm very, very excited to see what Ludwig Orenson comes up with. That's a really great point. We got anything else on Oppenheimer? I'm just super stoked to see it, bro. I cannot wait. I'm ecstatic. It's going to blow us away. <laughs> it's going to blow your hair back, everybody. Don't let anyone tell you what you should or shouldn't watch. It's up to you yeah. if you want to go see this movie. But thank you so much for tuning in to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Become a patron of the show. It's the best way to support us by going to patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. We have five different tiers of membership. $2, $5, $10, $25, and $100. Every tier has a bunch of custom unique perks. So definitely check those out. And if you want to start a podcast and you want to learn the ropes from Anthony and I, we made a masterclass online. You can learn everything we did in video format. It's a ton of lessons there for Four you. hours of lessons. Lots of content. And that link is podcastmasterclass.teachable.com. Take care, everybody. See you next time. This episode of Raiders of the Lost Podcast was executive produced by our chosen one patrons. Luke Exelston, Tyler McFly, Darren Singleton, Anthony DeMeo, Becca Keen, Cody Moen, Benjamin Cook, Calvin Cam. And Chandler Johnson, thank you so much for supporting our show. Raiders of the Lost Podcast is a Mirror Image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.